Good morning. And welcome to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is February the 13th. It must be a Sunday because it's snowing. Oh, well. It looks pretty from in here, right? Our scripture today comes from Luke 9, 18, 31. And I'm going to cover actually a couple of stories within this. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago who has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter, sir, Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone of this. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Then he said to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days later, Jesus said this. After Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up to a mountaintop to pray. He was praying, and the appearance of his face changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Blessed is the word. Amen. There's that old adage that goes, history repeats itself, though I prefer the quotes that it's attributed to uh, Mark Twain. To be fair, it wasn't attributed to him in 1970, so who knows. But it says that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I mean, just look at history. Trends repeat. Not exactly, but similarly. Empires rise and fall in predictable cycles. Uh, nations tend to move back and forth between being more democratic and being more autocratic and back. Economies grow and shrink, bubbles forming and bursting. This is why we study history. It's important because if we can understand something about the past, maybe we can avoid it in the future if we're lucky and if we're wise. 
I probably have said this up here before because I know it's a theme I often come back to in my life because I love reading history and I listen to the news. But honestly, if there's one thing that we can truly learn from history, it's that we humans are really good at ignoring it. I mean, just open your Old Testament, specifically the book of Judges. So, you know, Judges is this weird time in Israel's history. They have conquered the land under, jo under Joshua in the book of Joshua. And then they exist in this time when there was no king. They have clans with clan leaders. They have tribes with tribal leaders. And they have these people called judges. And they're not, like, just judicial, but they're, like, war party leaders. They're generals and judicial, but also don't have any real authority themselves. It's confusing. At the beginning of Judges, it starts a cycle. The people forget, and they sin against God. They sin against one another. And God's protection of the land is revoked, and somebody around them takes advantage of the situation. Then the people cry out, and God sends a new judge who frees them and gives them and brings them back to God. That judge rules for a time, and they die, and the cycle repeats. At the beginning, you have some really good judges. You have Othiniel, and you have uh, Deborah and Ehud. You know, people whose names we may not know exactly. Deborah's probably the best known of the great judges. But then we get Gideon. And Gideon, Gideon isn't perfect like some of the ones before him are. He, he doesn't exactly trust God. And when he frees the people, he makes an idol afterwards to his own military victories. It just gets worse after that. Every judge seems to have a bigger failing. Until at last you get the worst of the judges, Samson. Who may be the like the most strong, the physically strongest person in the Bible, but his strength is only skin deep. Bless my mind there. He's only skin deep. He openly disregards many of God's commands. He philanders. He struggles with rage and anger, taking it out on people who don't deserve it necessarily. It isn't until he loses everything that he finally realizes God's importance in his life and he comes to actual faith. It's a reflection of what the rest of the people have gone through. They trust, they're trusting more in their own strength than in God's protection. The book of Judges finally implodes with this terrible bloody civil war between the tribes. And we can see throughout their entire story of Judges, they never learn their lessons. But God never gives up on us. God is always open to our pleas for redemption. That too we can learn. And God is forever reaching out to us even when we are not asking for it. 
attempting to bring us back into relationship, to help us break our addiction to sin. Addiction's what we have. Now, I don't want to make light in any way of addiction. It's a terrible thing. I mean, after all, the American Society of of Addiction Medicine defines it as a treatable, though chronic, medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, environment, and an individual's life experiences. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. That is true for addiction to substances, addictions to behavior, and frankly, to sin. After all, is not sin a destructive behavior that harms not only ourselves, but our community and even our planet? We do it because we are living in a world where that kind of thinking has become acceptable and frankly, for many of us, compulsive. Now, one way to fight addiction is to remove yourself into a clean environment where time can be spent on overcoming these urges. That's, that's rehab in a nutshell. And that's what our own ancestors in the radical pietist and the Anabaptist movements did. Our forefathers and foremothers went into spiritual rehab. Now, as I'm talking about salvation here, and I'm going to be coming back to Exodus later, I need you to understand that when I am talking about salvation in here, I'm talking about the way salvation was viewed, especially in the Old Testament. Salvation is not something that any individual can achieve. Salvation is something that is achieved communally. That's what our ancestors in the Anabaptist believed as well. And it still runs within our tradition that salvation is both individual and communal. So, in order to achieve salvation on a communal level, they removed themselves from the society around themselves and created a new one. And any person who was within the community that sinned and failed to take that seriously and failed to correct the behavior was removed from the community the same way as it was done in, well, the Old Testament all over the place. Until such time as the people repented and showed improvement. Now, okay, this process is not perfect. I mean, obviously. I mean, so, you know, we, the Church of the Brethren, have stopped using the ban, I don't know, about 70, 80 years ago now. I'm not sure if anyone here has ever seen someone be banned. I'm looking at a few of our older members who've grown up in this church. No? No. I was looking at you, Christine. (laughs) Ah, I should have been looking at him, too. We've stopped using the ban, but, you know, we have brothers and sisters in the old orders of the Anabaptists, like the Amish, the old order Mennonite, the old order Brethren, who have continued to use the band, and guess what? They deal with sin too, just like the rest of us. It's not a perfect system. But there's actually a Greek word for this system. It comes from the two primary words, ek, 
which means to come out of, from, out of, or from. Greek has a couple of these words where it's got like 18, 18 different ways to direct people from one thing to another. But generally it means from. And hodas, which means a road or a journey. And when the Bible was translated into Greek, a thing called the Septuagint, which is what most of the, the gospel writers had a copy of. We can look at their scriptures. If you compare it to the Hebrew Old Testament, you go, that doesn't fit right. It's because they're looking at Septuagint. The Septuagint gave Greek names to all of these books. And one of them was Exodus, the journey out of. This word only appears three times in the New Testament. Twice in the letters, 2 Peter and one of Paul's, I can't recall right now, and once in the Gospels, in 931 of Luke. I might put it back in its place. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, Matthew and Mark both tell this same story, the transfiguration, but neither of them discuss what is Jesus talking to, I mean, talking about with Moses and Elijah. But Luke makes sure that we know that that word is there. So let's take a real quick look at the Exodus. I'm going to do five books in one paragraph here. Here we go. Starting at the end of Genesis. Jacob moves his family to Egypt because there's a great big famine and it discovered that his lost son, Joseph, is the grand vizier or second man in charge of Egypt. They move down there and settle in the eastern Nile Delta, a land called Goshen. And for generations, they lived and thrived in there. But a time comes when a new pharaoh is sitting upon the throne. I mean, after all, generations, pharaohs live just about as long as anyone else. And that pharaoh looks at all these Hebrews that become a very large minority and decides this is dangerous. And so he goes to oppress them. However, they continue to thrive. And so he has all the, the boys from newborn to two-year-olds killed. But it doesn't work quite right. And one of them escapes thanks to his mother, Josebed's quick thinking. That boy is actually raised right under Pharaoh's nose. His name is Moses. Moses grows up, kills an Egyptian who's hurting a Hebrew, and runs away into the desert where he goes and he lives in Midian. There he marries, raises a family, and then talks to a burning bush. Crazy as all that is. That burning bush says, guess what? I'm God. I'm sending you back. So he meets up with his brother Aaron, goes back there, and we have one of those sets of repetitions going on. He keeps going to Pharaoh and saying, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. He says, here comes the plague. He says, so what? Plague comes. It's really bad. Pharaoh goes, oh no, get rid of this plague. I'll let you go. And he goes, great. There goes the plague. And Pharaoh goes, eh, I was kidding. Repeat, wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse. Eventually, the 10th plague comes. It's horrible. Every firstborn Egyptian male dies. Not good. But finally, they manage to escape. They manage to leave where they cross the Sea of Reeds and travel down the peninsula to Mount Sinai. And yes, I've been saying Sea of Reeds because that's the way the Hebrew actually reads. But we often call it the Red Sea. But it's a different sea. Anyway, we're not getting into that. Sorry, I'm getting, I promised one paragraph. 
Here we go. There they make a covenant with God. They promise to follow this law. That is the book of Leviticus that is then handed down along with a big chunk of Exodus and a little bit of Deuteronomy. So they say, we will follow this law. And God says, great, I am now going to send you up to the promised land. They get to the edge. They send in spies, 12 of them, one from each tribe. Ten of them come back and say, yeah, no, they're big and scary. Joshua and Caleb says, God's with us. And the people said, yeah, we're listening to the ten, not the two. After all, ten out of twelve scouts do not recommend this. That was a dentist joke. No, okay. <laughs> One paragraph, I promised. So they have to wander around for 40 years while people are dying left and right until finally only Joseph, Joseph, aye, 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 Joshua and Caleb are left. Joshua and Caleb then lead the people across the Jordan to conquer Jericho and the rest of the Holy Land. That is the first, actually if I count Joshua, six books of the Bible in a nutshell. Okay, admittedly, it was very light going through there, and I skipped a lot of what happened in the middle. But it has that same pattern, that same repetition. And just like Judges, it goes from bad to worse. I mean, almost as soon as they get away, through an opened body of water, you know, they've walked through an opened sea, whether that was the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, it doesn't matter. It was an opened sea. If I went over to the Cuyahoga River and it opened up for me the cross, I would be no less impressed than if I walked to the Lake Erie. I would still be impressed. But no, they are not. And so they start grumbling. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I'm surprised that Moses didn't turn around and say, I will turn this caravan around which is actually what they wanted, so I guess maybe not. But God answers what they need. God cares for them. God feeds them. God waters them. It sounds like my dog. Anyway, they get their walks. And then it gets worse, though. They make the covenant, but then they start breaking the covenant, and they do worse things. They do, like... It's not just grumbling now. It's full-out sinful behavior. It's rebellion against Moses and God. It's worshiping idols. It's hurting one another. And so God responds. And mind you, we're looking at salvation on a communal level, not an individual level. So in order for this group to reach salvation on a communal level, they begin to weed themselves out. Those who rebel, those who engage in sinful behavior, pass away one by one until they arrive at the promised land's edge with a group of men and women who trust God so implicitly that they think it's a great idea to walk around a city for seven days and that God will give them a victory through it. You know, when prophet Hosea who lives near the end of the northern um, nation of Israel, uh, writes his book, he is going to wax nostalgic for this era. He will call it a honeymoon, that time period when a new husband and wife get to know each other as a family 
as a full couple. And he actually will call for his people to return into that time, into the wilderness, to remember why they came into this relationship with God, how God had given them everything, instead of where they were doing then, which was trusting their, well, ancient to us, but to them, their modern world. But I'm going to step to the side, and I want to look at this through that lens of addiction. Because there's another way to read this. The people were, were removed from a toxic and dangerous environment and led to a space where they are cared for, where they can work on themselves, where they are given protection and direction. And they struggle with themselves, just as any person who is dealing with addiction struggles with themselves. And so they must go through a time where they cleanse themselves of habits that are, well, not helpful and of the addiction itself. Until they arrive through it clean and ready to start a new life in a new place removed from that toxic environment. The Exodus is a rehab center. You know, the Jews and Ezra and Nehemiah viewed it that way. I remember we, we had a sermon on that where I kind of reworked the, walked through that entire time period. Well, remember that they, they got there and they thought, we are the purified. We are those who went through the crucible. And we have come back clean of sin just as we had from the exile. Of course, they weren't. And they used the fact that they thought they were better than everyone else to make things worse. Instead, sins continue, expand. And so when Jesus meets God, so Jesus meets two of God's greatest servants. Moses, the one who led them through the Exodus, and Elijah, who fought so hard to turn the people away from the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, someone who did not leave this world for cleansing, but worked within it. These two servants are also the only two people we really know in the Bible, not including Adam and Eve, because that was a little different, but the only two people who talked to God face to face. They knew what it meant to be God's middleman. They knew what it meant to stand between the world and the people in God's way. And they call this journey that Jesus is about to undertake to Jerusalem an exodus, a journey of purification out of sin, a journey into faith and redemption. But this exodus will not be like the others. History repeats itself. No, I'm sorry. History rhymes with itself. This will be a little different yet. But after all, we as humans cannot view the totality, the totality of history. We cannot see what happened and how it worked and how it didn't work as easily as God. God has seen what we have done. God has seen how we have reacted in the attempts of reconciliation. Just as Paul would later write in his seventh chapter of the letter to Romans, that the struggle between that about the struggle between the law of God and sin, saying that the law itself really was perfect. But we, in our addiction, have turned it into an enabling tool for more sin. 
just as the exiles had turned after their just as the exiles had turned their time away from Judea into a tool of dis, uh, discrimination, so the earlier um, generations had turned their time with God and that law they had received into a tool of sin. We humans need to go through this, all of these failures, so that we can be given a new understanding of what this exodus means what this time, this journey of redemption to Jerusalem means, and what the gift at the end, that gift of relationship, how that will live in us and around us. Soon after this moment on the mountain, the story of, of Luke will turn. Up until now, Jesus has stayed in Galilee, talking to the people he had grown among, but then he will begin his journey to Jerusalem. John, James, and Peter understand what's happening. Now, we didn't read the whole transfiguration, but we may know what happens next. They begin to build huts, or they ask at Jesus, can we build you huts? It isn't just because they thought, you know, oh, it's going to rain, and we want to make sure that Moses doesn't, you know, get wet. No one likes a wet Moses. I mean, he lived in the desert all those years. He's not used to rain. No. It's because it's reflecting a celebration called the Festival of Booths. Every year, the Hebrews would go out and build shelters out in their fields where they would celebrate the Exodus and how God cared for them in the wilderness. They see that Jesus is about to lead them on a new exodus. And so they ask to build shelters in celebration. But this journey would not be like the others. They would not be taken away from their land as the exiles had to live and learn how to be a community in a strange world. It would not be like their ancient ancestors who were removed out of Egypt and taken into the wilderness. This exodus... This exodus would be through their own homeland. Jesus would take his followers and leave Galilee and journey to Jerusalem, all along the way teaching them, showing them how to live, even sending them out for, well, to do the work themselves. Sure, they'd be leaving their family and friends for this sort of wilderness, but they were not going into the actual wilderness they would be transformed in the real world, slowly evolving from a bunch of individuals who were either called or who had decided to follow this random rabbi into a community that would become the foundation of the church. But while they may be leaving home, they are not entering seclusion. Keep coming back to that, apparently. The Exodus will be teaching them a new way to live in society, how to overcome their addiction to sin and bring others along. They would be a distinct people, but not because of their bloodlines, not because of how they dress, not because they had gone off to live in the wilderness, like the Essenes, for instance, at that time, but they would be distinct because of how they lived their faith. We are called to do that as well. 
We are not called to separate ourselves off from the world, and we are not called to be, well, exactly perfect either because of the gift that is given at the end of the Exodus. When Jesus reaches Jerusalem, the purification will be a little bit different than before. Instead of being given a new land, or instead of being given a chance at a new beginning as the exiles were, they are going to be given a chance at a new grace, a forgiveness, a recognition that we humans, as much as we may strive to be perfect, inevitably fall off the wagon. But we're not going to hit the concrete. God picks us back up. The promise that is given on the cross and the promise that we find in that empty tomb is that we are forgiven when we fail. And we just can't help ourselves because of our compulsiveness, because we live in this world. And while that may be hard to live with, it's hard to accept that even our faith at its most deepest will never lead us to perfection, the beauty of it, and what Luke wants us to understand, I think, is that when it happened before, it was always for a group. It was for the Israelites. It was for the returnees. But Jesus isn't concerned about only offering salvation to a little group. God wants to send salvation to every single person. And so God calls us to live this exodus, this journey to the cross, this journey to this perfect salvation in the world so that every person may see us doing it, being kind, being loving, and getting back up when we fall down. It's a journey out. A journey out of the home. Remember that Galilee was the most Jewish of the Jewish lands in ancient Israel at that time. Yeah, there was Jerusalem, there was the temple and all that. But those who really followed the faith all pretty much lived in Galilee. So we will have an exodus today. We will leave this church building out into a world that struggles to know their left from their right. Just as Jesus led his followers into a land where people struggle to know their left from their right. Good luck. We all need it. But that's okay when we mess up. Because God's with us. Thank you. I really love old hymns. I say old hymns. This home was Texas from 1974, so not that old. Not old at all. But I love them because the words they express, the poetry. We are not lost, though wandering. For by your light we come. And we are still God's people. The journey is our home. Go home. It's through the door. And down the road. And not necessarily your address. Amen. Oh,